Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Frank Keating. Frank is a nationally known and nationally successful uh, person in wide range of things in life, uh, starting as an FBI agent, starting as a, after that as a U.S. Uh, as a United States attorney and head of all the uh, uh, law enforcement of the Department of Justice, uh, and on and on. Came home, he, he came back to Oklahoma and became the governor of Oklahoma. And we'll be talking about, in particular, about some events that happened there. Finally, he left office and he was involved in investigating. He was the head of the investigation of the uh, priest scandal in, in the Catholic Church, uh, sexual abuse. And finally, now he is on the University of Oklahoma Board of Regents. So he's got a wide range of background. We're going to be talking about all of those and so his thoughts on on where we're going in our country right now. As I say, Frank Keating, with respect, and we'll be right back. doing fine, John. How are you? I'm fantastic. And I ask everybody the first question that everybody in this show for 17 years has gotten. Where are you from originally? Well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. My mother was from Southern Illinois, just across the river from St. Louis. My dad was in the oil business, in the energy business, really a rough tech with a college degree, a guy that worked with his hands from Pennsylvania. So my parents met in Southern Illinois when I was six months old. Dad and mom uh, moved us. I had two brothers uh, to Tulsa, where I grew up and lived on and off. And then from there, went to, to D.C. on and off for 25 years. Met a wonderful woman named Kathy, who was also an Oklahoman. And we had uh, three children, all adults now. And now we have 11 grandchildren, and those are Easy to remember some birthdays, but not all birthdays. One granddaughter was born on the 4th of July. That's an easy one. Another granddaughter was born on the birthday of her mother, our daughter Kelly. That's an easy one. The rest of them, I have to keep a notebook. <laughs> that's, that's a, uh, I'm not going to be gene- uh, uh, too generic about that, but that's a problem that many people have is keeping track of especially their grandchildren and great-grandchildren's birthdays. (laughs) It is tough sometimes, but they're all wonderful people. And, you know, John, someone uh, asked me once, what's the most important decision you make? 
And I said, who are you marrying? Kevin, I've been married over 50 years. And then they asked, what's the second most important decision you make? And I said, without equivocation or hesitancy, who your children marry. <laughs> and our kids all married wonderful human beings, two girls and one boy, and I'm happy as can be. Frank, uh, you and I have been friends for some years, for many years, and we were both U.S. attorneys together uh, back in the, in the uh, 80s. Um, and we had a number of uh, cross paths. We were on the advisory committee to the attorney general uh, for a couple of years. Um, you went on to become the head of the, of the law enforcement component of the Department of Justice, uh, at least the <coughs> U.S. attorneys and various investigative agencies. You also were an FBI agent, and you did that for a period of time. I'll ask you about that in a minute. But then you, you went on and you, you kind of branched out in the federal government or in charge of law enforcement or law enforcement positions in different federal branches. And um, finally, uh, you and I were both, we have one simpatico uh, uh, pair of threads, you and I were both nominated by President Bush uh, to be uh, judges on the, on the U.S. Courts of Appeals. You're in the 10th Circuit and I was in the 6th Circuit. And finally... Uh, when we w were uh, we died the death and we never got our confirmation or became judges, uh, you went on to become governor of Oklahoma uh, in a particularly tough time, uh, three months before the Oklahoma City bombing, and we're going to come back to that uh, later on in our in our <coughs> chit chat here. But and now you're on the board of uh, the board of regents, the University of Oklahoma. So you've seen it. All over the oh, and I forgot to mention all your legislative experience when you were a legislator in Oklahoma. So you put all that together, and I got to ask you, what was what motivated you to get into government? Well, John, I came from a family. My father was on the city council of Tulsa City Commission, they called it, and my Dad believed very strongly that all of us owe some portion of our careers to public service. Because as he used to say, nature abhors a vacuum. And if you don't fill it, somebody else will fill it who may not really care about anything but him or herself. And my grandfather, um, of my mother's father, served in Congress from Illinois. He was a Democrat. My father was a Republican. So I came from a very bipartisan background but dad always spoke in terms of integrity and service. I remember my twin brother and I were in a horse show in Tulsa and civil rights was also very important to him, a Pennsylvania man. And of course, Oklahoma under the Democrats was a Jim Crow state. And uh, the first speaker of the house, uh, who was really one of the founders of Oklahoma, uh, when the legislature convened for its first meeting, he saw a black face as a member of the legislature, and he said, no, this won't do. So they sent to a vote of the people, the Democrats did, who controlled the state, lock, stock, and barrel, a provision that said, if you or your family couldn't vote in 1865, you can't vote now. So this African-American, A.C. Hamlin, was defeated, and we went through the agony of Jim Crow with Dad after the uh, horse show was over, or my portion of it, my brothers, uh, you know, I have little boys there. I say, hey, where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? And my dad says, see that big black arrow over there? It says colored only. 
I said, yes, sir. He said, that's your bathroom. Mm-hmm. So I went over there, went to the bathroom, came back. And uh, I said, Dad, wh- wh- what's that mean? And he looked at me with a stern look with his finger right in my face. And he said, that's the reason you will never be a Democrat. I want you to promise me that right now. And Oklahoma was not a Republican state. We had very few Republicans. He said, that's the party of Jim Crow and racism and the Ku Klux Klan and slavery. And you will not join that. And I said, yes, sir. He said, give me your word. And I said, yes, sir. So <laughs> I was taking orders from a young age. And I have a lot of wonderful Democrat friends. And as I said, my granddad, my mother's father, was a Democrat member of Congress back during the Depression. And he was a wonderful human being. So I've had a lot of uh, mixtures of family members and uh, mixtures of political parties. But always my father and my mother and my family said, you have an obligation to serve. You don't have to be full-time, but you have an obligation to serve, and I tried to follow that advice. Well, you start off with the FBI. How did you get into the FBI, or why? Well, I was in law school, John, as you were, and uh, my draft number was a draft number that really would not be called. So I thought, well, I'm probably not going to get drafted, but my twin brother was a Marine officer, and so I said, well, I, I think I'll become a JAG officer in the Marine Corps because I, you know, was getting my law degree. So, uh, you know, went and visited the recruiting or whatever the person was that you talked to to be considered for the JAG Corps. And uh, when I went back to school, there was a notice that the FBI were interviewing uh, people to be potential agents because the Bureau needed FBI agents in those days, you had to be a lawyer or a CPA. I remember in order that. to be an FBI agent, and I wish they would return to that standard. We'll talk about that later. But any of them, so I listened to the gentleman talking, and he said, "You know, we really need lawyers. We need CPAs. We need people that will help us fight the crime problem." Uh, and they were very focused on the radical left. My first office was Seattle. My second office was San Francisco and Berkeley. And I'm glad I had a law degree because I would disagree and and discuss cases with the assistant U.S. attorneys. And uh, I think I did a very good job to make sure the truth always was out front. Uh, I took the view as a prosecutor at the state level as well as the federal level that if someone didn't do it, we don't want to screw around with them. Uh, I mean, that means the real criminal is still on the street. But I learned so much morals, ethics, and values in terms of truth and law enforcement from the Bureau, the premier law enforcement agency. And it's just too bad that today it's uh, gotten slovenly and really branched out and brought people in that were not lawyers. And J. Edgar Hoover said, if I get lawyers and I get CPAs, they will be integrity-filled and they won't be corrupt. And he was right. But then we changed all the rules under Jim Comey and, uh, and Mueller and some of these guys, which really, I think, terribly buffeted the, the integrity of the FBI. You went on to become U.S. attorney, and that's the same position that I held here in western Michigan. But uh, that had to give you a different perspective. The department, now you're the department, different part of the Department of Justice. What was that like? Well, well, I think, um, you know, the thing that I loved about being a United States attorney is I could be a truth taker. In other words, I'm not going to screw around. 
with untruths or myths. I want facts, facts, and facts. I remember one time when I was an agent in Seattle, maybe it was San Francisco, um, you know, I tried, I was in witness in a lot of cases, and there was one in particular where the assistant U.S. attorney never objected. He let this uh, defense attorney roll all over me, misstate the facts. The judge just kind of watched, and the AUSA, assistant U.S. attorney, didn't object. So I said, I'm going home to be a prosecutor. Well, I went home and became a state assistant DA. I tried dozens of cases, uh, and I always, if there was a question in my mind from the police department, and there were some officers that I think fabricated, and they said, and when I uh, arrested him, I immediately advised him, right, if he has a right to remain silent, I said, come on. And I'd say to him, you really did that? And, well, not exactly. I said, look, tell the truth as it happened, because it will come out whatever the truth is. And I just feel as a prosecutor, you can make sure that truth is leads the discussion and that the facts, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, a unanimous jury. I never tried somebody and never argued a case where I didn't think the person was guilty based upon the facts beyond a reasonable doubt. There are a lot of people in the criminal justice system that wouldn't have that flinty sense of integrity. You were also in the state house in the state Senate. So you saw the legislative process uh, up front and personal. How did that affect well, you? Well, I mean, it made me realize how important it was to have the very best people in elected positions. In my day, I was a Republican in a 101 member house with only 25 Republicans. I was a state Senate Republican leader in the state Senate, and there were seven Republicans out of 48. So I never could be the principal author of a bill by myself, but I made good relation, good friendships, professional relationships I built with my Democratic colleagues. And there were bills like, for example, the law of Oklahoma said if a man and a woman committed husband and wife a crime together, it was assumed the woman committed the crime under the influence of the husband. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, we have equal rights, equal integrity, equal human beings with constitutional and legal obligations. And so I got that law repealed. There were a whole bunch of things like that where I would go to my Democratic colleagues and say, this is nuts, especially in the criminal justice arena. And the Democrats have been in charge since statehood and as a result, uh, I think they had looked the other way in a lot of stuff. And I was, uh, how do I say it? I, I was their uh, scorekeeper. At one time, I was, uh, uh, I was appointed to a committee that was uh, brought together by the Speaker of the House and the pro tem of the Senate to look into allegations against the chief agent of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Well, when the committee first met, I was the only Republican on it. And I don't think they really knew who I was, what my background was as prosecutor and law enforcement. And one guy said, well, you know, the purpose of this is this guy's getting too close to legislative leadership, and we want him to be exposed as a fraud and corrupt, and we have uh, witnesses who will say that, so that's what we're going to do. And I said, well, now, before we 
<clears throat> bring in the guilty son of a bitch, uh, <laughs> will <laughs> will we have an opportunity to have a full and fair hearing with witnesses from both sides? You could hear a pin drop. And these guys look down the table and who is this white faced Republican? How'd he get in here? So we had an open, fair hearing. At the end of the hearing, the facts showed this was not only an excellent agent, he was an outstanding agent as a chief agent. He was a man of total integrity, and they uh, passed a resolution unanimously praising him as a career public official in Oklahoma. If I weren't there, that never would have happened. And those are the kind of things that serving in public life puts you uh, in magnetic north. The wind's in your face, and you have to do what's right. And I've enjoyed doing that because of my law enforcement and prosecution background. You know, always try to find the truth. Never try to pick on somebody if they didn't do it. Never make up stories. Only the facts, as Joe Friday used to say, only the facts, ma'am, only the facts. And, and also from your family, your father. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, we're talking to Frank Keating, who is um, – national figure and one time he was considered a uh, possible candidate for the presidency of the United States but we'll get into all that later so far we've talked about his work in the uh, FBI in the uh, local district attorney's office and then state legislature and US attorney but we've got so much more we'll be talking to him again this is John Smetanka and we are on with respect and we'll be right back Now back on with respect with Frank Keating, former, gosh, just about everything, governor of Oklahoma uh, during the uh, the bombing of the Oklahoma City uh, Federal Building, um, head of a, an investigation of uh, corruption of police, pardon me, of priest corruption, priest and religious corruption at the Catholic Church. Now on the board of regents of the University of Oklahoma. So, back to Frank. This is John Smetanka. So, Frank, you, you learned something about walking st bravely into the wind uh, with that, that particular law enforcement agent who was on trial and not necessarily popular. Um, but you talked about civil rights, um, and you, had a, you, you were involved in, this, in civil rights organizations, weren't you, when you were in Oklahoma? Well, I was the when I was a younger man in the legislature. I was chief counsel of the NAACP uh, in Oklahoma, and um, I'm proud to say when I was nominated by President Bush Senior to be on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, as you were nominated to the circuit. Guess who came to my office? I was general counsel and the deputy secretary of HUD under Jack Hamp. Coretta Scott King came to my office to make phone calls 
two senators that I knew weren't going to support me anyway, because Bill Clinton, my old uh, friend from Georgetown University, where I went to college, uh, was soon to be elected president. But I thought that was remarkable that it would happen. A Republican would be embraced by a black leader. But for me, I was the the first uh, uh, governor to put uh, an African-American, highly qualified, gifted, on the appellate bench in Oklahoma. No Democrat since statehood ever did that. And they had overwhelming majorities in the House and Senate. I nominated the first African-American to be the Secretary of Commerce of Oklahoma. Uh, Democrats always put in the head of the pardon pro board as a black, because aren't a lot of blacks criminals, and or uh, the head of Department of Human Services, because aren't all blacks or a bunch of them dependent? Well, I put a man named Russell Perry, who was the wealthiest African-American in the Southwest, a wonderful friend, a banker, a publisher, owns 25 radio stations, and uh, the Democrat Senate uh, would let him serve acting, but they never would have a hearing to confirm him to the state Senate. Well, I turned into a pretty focused person in favor of success for all of us, black, white, red, and yellow. And in my early days in Oklahoma in the House and Senate, and, uh, and quite truthfully, even as governor, because of my experience with Mr. Perry, uh, this was not a friendly place for uh, civil rights. All right. We were both nominated uh, by President Bush to be on the Circuit Courts of Appeal. And uh, you were in the 10th Circuit, and I was in the 6th Circuit. And we had uh, we were held up for far longer than they ordinarily would, even in an election year, uh, by uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and or, and or uh, Democratic senators from our states. And come <coughs> August of 1992, you and I happened to be in the office of a friend of ours uh, down in D.C., a young guy, a nice fellow, nice sense of humor, very bright, um, and he was nominated to be as uh, judge of the, of the D.C. Circuit. Big big deal, right below the Supreme Court. And we both, we all three of us knew we weren't going to get confirmed, so I said, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I said, Guys, did we get anything out of this? I mean, there's there's some value to this that we've gone through, all this delay and whatnot. And this other young man said, oh, yeah, John. Oh, yeah, we got the right to use initials after our name. I said, really? He said, yeah. I, what You mean like Ph.D.? He said, yeah. I said, well, what initials? He said, A.J.O., John Smetanka, Frank Keating, A.J.O. What does that mean? Almost judge once. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten that, John, and, but that's and, awfully cute. And you know who the that little young man was? Because you probably don't, you probably remember him. That li- that young man uh, nominated for the D.C. Circuit is a fellow by the name of John Roberts, who's now the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So, life takes us all in different directions. Now, I'm going to focus you on a couple of things that. Um, we're going to lead into a, a topic that I've been bothered about and I want to hear your views on. But we have in life, everybody has successes and they have failures. They try to do something. We all tried to do We were trying to be circuit court of appeals judges and we failed. 
we tried, I tried to be Attorney General of the state of Michigan twice, and I failed. Um, you tried some other things in your life, and you failed. But you kept on going. What is it about <coughs> failure and success that are so intimately related to each other? I mean, we can talk about Lincoln and his tremendous list of, of failures before he became president. But what is it? What do you think it is? You've seen good people out there. You've seen successful well, people. Well, well, John, I learned to sail in Michigan, <laughs> in Lake, uh, in the White Lake, which is just north of uh, Muskegon, because my grandmother, as I mentioned, lived up there. But there's a, a sailor's expression, calm seas do not a great mariner make. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very true about life as well. I mean, I ran for Congress twice. I, if I had gotten to Washington, I think I probably would have been a, a, a reasonably successful person there. But Oklahoma was an overwhelmingly Democrat state, and and I just couldn't pull it off. Uh, there Democrats uh, were in charge, and Democrats were going to remain in charge. But when I ran for governor, uh, we haven't had a Republican governor since the 60s. And so because of my law enforcement background and because of a concern on the part of the public about the integrity of public officials, we've had you know, a number of scandals. They elected me. Forty-some-odd percent of my cabinet were Democrats. I bought, I got the, the, the I, I borrowed, bought, and, and grabbed off the street the very best, smartest people, most integrity-filled people I could. And I told them, this doesn't pay much, this job, but we need you for just a few years uh, to show the public that we can have government of efficiency, government of excellence, and government of morals, ethics, values, and legality. And, uh, you know, when I came into office, Oklahoma ranked 45th in per capita personal income. When we left, when I left office eight years later with, a again, a Democrat House and Senate, my, the whole time I was in, I vetoed 302 of their bills, all were sustained by this little group of Republicans, but we moved from 45th to 37th per capita personal income. I was a father of charter schools. We got right to work in the Constitution. We finished the turnpikes. We uh, made the school tougher, schools tougher, and then the guy that followed me was a Democrat, and they basically unwound some of that stuff. But, uh, you know, we got tort reform, all the stuff that Republican governors would want because I vetoed all their bills. But I used to tell them, look, I like you guys personally. I just don't like your bad ideas. You, you've been in charge here since 1907, and we were 45th in per capita income. And they laughed, and we worked together and got a lot done. Well, you, you just hit on a couple of points that, that I want to now move into what uh, I'm concerned about. Uh, you were able to make, from what you describe, Republicans and Democrats with different ideas, and some very strongly held, and it tough to and it, it, you brass knuckled it maybe I don't know how you got um, where you got uh, as far as all those vetoes, but eventually the state benefited uh, from what you described. Well, John, and those vetoes, none were overridden. Uh, 
you know, 302 of them. <clears throat> but let me tell you, when I was first elected, I called the pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, and I said, hey, let's have breakfast uh, every week on Monday morning. And they said, great, that'll be fine. <clears throat> and they said, well, that'll just be the three of us, right? I said, no, we'll have the Republican leader in the Senate, the Republican leader in the House, to which the Democrat leaders said, well, why would we do that? They don't rate. <clears throat> and I said, yeah, maybe they have an idea that we might want to listen to. Well, we did that for my full eight years. And the Democrats and the Republicans back and forth at breakfast, look, you know, we got problems here. We got problems there. We got to do something about it. And we did something about it. Passed tort reform in the Democrat House and Senate, put right to work in the Constitution. As I said, public school choice, couldn't get private school choice through the Democrat House and Senate, but we got charter schools. And how could you do that back in those days? Unions in most places are overwhelmingly powerful and uncaring about the quality of education that's provided kids. And I just told everybody, you know, we're going to make this place a better place. And you guys, you know, I want to listen to you all. We're going to do it together. And we did it together. Their, their names were on everything as well as mine. I'm going to take a, a, a radical jump now. I'm going to come back to Oklahoma City bombing. But I want to talk about uh, something that uh, uh, you're a Catholic uh, and uh, raised such uh, and you were put in charge by the Catholic uh, Conference of Bishops uh, of, a, of the effort to investigate uh, the extent, the reality, or the unreality of allegations of uh, misconduct by priests and religious. Um, and you didn't last long. What happened? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, actually, Wilton Gregory who was then the Bishop of East St. Louis, Illinois, um, an African-American, a Southern Baptist convert to Catholicism, called me and he said, the bishops and I, we all want you, 300 of them, uh, to be the chair of the first National Catholic Review Board to investigate allegations ag against uh, priests. And we have a agenda, zero tolerance, this conduct, criminal referrals to law enforcement, <clears throat> and transparency. If we settle a case and pay people for a priest conduct, the public needs to know about it. So I saluted smartly. I had Liam Panetta on my board. Um, I had uh, uh, Bob Bennett's brother, uh, I mean, excuse me, Bill Bennett's brother, Bob, on my board and a number of wonderful people. And we just looked at all the allegations brought to us and anyone who fit into those categories, we, we removed them from the priesthood. We prosecuted them. Uh, everything was transparent and everything was zero tolerance. Uh, at the end, one of the Cardinals uh, said, we've had enough of this Keating guy. And, you know, he's, a, a, he's after everybody. Well, yeah. I mean, if you did it, uh, I'm after you. If you didn't do it, I'm not after you. And at one point, somebody, after I had left, Cardinal Mahoney, who was the Archbishop of, of L.A., was the guy that wanted me gone. 
and they and so I told Bishop Gregory at the time he's by the way cardinal in D.C. I told him I said, well, I know if we did do this right, you'll never be a cardinal, and I'll never be a knight of Malta. <laughs> well, I got blackballed the first time to be a knight of Malta, and he had a hard time going up the ladder. But you know, I made I'm a knight of Malta, and he's a cardinal because I think everybody saw what we did was right. But we've been criticized at board by saying, yeah, but you guys didn't go after the bishops and the archbishops. I said, bishops and archbishops and cardinals are priests. We had no allegations against any of them. Now then, since then, Cardinal McCarrick, who is now just private citizen wretch McCarrick, living, living in Kansas, a guy like that, we never heard of allegations against him. But thank goodness someone else went after him. But, you know, there's no way that that Christ Church can be this way. And, you know, the Southern Baptist, head of the Southern Baptists in America, called me and he said, you're the mother church. If you don't do this right, we're all in trouble. Well, my, my Baptist friends, they had a lot of sex abuse allegations. A lot of churches do. Some clean it up. Some look the way they're afraid about paying their mortgage off. And I think that's silly. If you have people that are ungodly, you should get rid of them. But back in the early days, some of these uh, seminarians, they went to what were described as pink seminaries. I mean, uh, homosexuality was viewed as a civil right by some people. And that just, you know, killed uh, the priesthood's the, uh, the reputation of the priesthood in many people's eyes because whether you're for civil rights for gay people, and I am, well, they shouldn't be around young boys because a lot of them are predators. And uh, But I think the National Academy Review Board on my watch did a great job of bringing these evil acts to the attention of the general public. And a lot of dioceses, as you know, John, paid huge judgments to satisfy victims over the years. And I, it was absolutely right to do it and absolutely right to pay the claims of those who were so badly mauled. We're gonna take another break right now. We're talking to Frank Keating, who's been uh, talking about big national and local issues. And uh, we got so much more to talk about. We will be right back. This is John Smetanka on With Respect. back on with respect with Frank Keating, the former governor of Oklahoma and the former uh, head of uh, law enforcement uh, for several federal agencies in D.C. and now is on the board of regents uh, at the uh, at Oklahoma University of Oklahoma. Uh, this is John Smetanka and with respect. 
Frank, when we broke, we you gave a thorough explanation of your views and your actions uh, with the uh, priest and religious scandal. But there's more. And this is where I want to come back to maybe an overall view. You are now on the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma. And all throughout this country, we are having issues with various kinds of abuse or alleged abuse by universities against their students, among students, um, coaches. It just goes on and on and on. What's going on? What's going on with our universities? Well, I remember, pardon me, I was invited to University College Dublin to debate capital punishment. I happen to believe in it. I'm a Catholic. I know a lot of Catholics don't. But Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City and murdered 168 of our neighbors and friends, including 19 children, deserved to die. He needed to be returned to the devil. And at the University of College Dublin, there were two barristers against capital punishment and two for, well, my guy didn't show up. So I debated uh, the two that were against. Of course, the reason the Irish are so against is because their view uh, is the British in Northern Ireland were after them all the time. And the British obviously made it very, very difficult uh, for Catholics. And, and that's the way it was. And I didn't win the debate. I mean, I think it was close, but I didn't win the vote debate. But I think it's important to say why you believe something. And in my case, I felt that any priest that did what they were alleged to have done and that was proven against them should be removed from the priesthood. They shouldn't be around students. And everybody really looked the other way. A lot of people looked the other way. And I remember, uh, you know, just seeing and hearing this and seeing and, and, and hearing the evil that people do uh, in positions of responsibility and trust convince you, I hope, that this isn't right. We sh- can't have people like this. And in some universities, I'm not saying all, Every university has bad people. I told the the uh, University of College Zeppelin folks when they want to know why we we executed so many people. I said we execute 0.03 percent of the convicted murderers in the United States at that time. That was a figure. And we're just a violent society, and it's sad, and it's inexcusable, and it's immoral. But on college campuses, there are people who work as they work in any occupation or profession, who shouldn't be there. Uh, They use their positions of responsibility and trust and power to uh, basically do criminal acts with the vulnerable, and they need to be searched out and prosecuted. Uh, In Oklahoma, we had uh, issues, but in every case, since I've been on the Board of Regions, we have taken an aggressive uh, position in favor of Title IX that if you uh, are accused of, of assaulting an individual on campus, you know, those are grounds for punishment. But 
at my insistence, we want to make sure it's a two-way street. If the person who allegedly did it isn't given the opportunity to be heard and their side of the story to be heard, that's not a fair system. So what we require is both sides to be presented and a resolution will be had, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but preponderance of the evidence mainly. And I think we've addressed a lot of these issues that way. But on every college campus, I'm sure a lot of, if not most high schools, there are bad things that occur and what adults, parents, teachers, those in charge have to do is stand for the children and not stand for security or quiet. All right. We've set this table. We've talked about government. We've talked about religion. We've talked about educational um, uh, institutions. It's my observation that we are, as a society, I think this is sort of the easy way to say it, we are in um, a, a time of distrust of institutions. And it's come, it's come gradually, but it's like uh, the, the, the waves on the lake, it, it eventually wears down the hardest rock. And so, whereas we are have been a country which believed in, um, gave great credence to, say, our political or our religious or educational institutions, we are now challenging that belief. We're in the silos between Democrats and Republicans and non uh, people not involved in parties, um, but they have their own views on particular issues, and on and on. The question is, Frank, trust. We've lost. You're we absolutely right. We've lost trust in yes. all of those institutions. You're absolutely right, and <clears throat> I point the finger at those who are leading, because in my own experience, whether it was that commission to try to railroad chief Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation agent Puckett, or my own leadership as governor making it a bipartisan administration, you know, to have the president say MAGA Republicans. No, we're the party of Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, I would never say a Democrat, oh, they're all the party of slavery. No, we're, they're the party of Thomas Jefferson, who may have been a slave, but yeah. and I wrote Young Readers owned his own slaves, a lot of them. But I did a Young Readers book on a number of our founding fathers for Simon and Schuster. But the reality is he wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was the father of the University of Virginia, and he was the father of religious liberty in Virginia. Those are pretty significant credentials. Where are the rest of the people in those days doing things like that? There were a lot of people that hit the door. And today... If, if a state is divided against itself, I, I point the finger at the governor. Look, you need to bring everybody in, sit them down, shut the door, and work through problems, all problems. People stereotype, I understand that. And there are, you know, mega Republicans and there are, are ultra bad liberal woke Democrats. So, but sit them down and say, look, what you say about this, I don't think that makes sense, but but what you say about that makes good sense. That's what governors are supposed to do, and quite truthfully, that's what presidents are supposed to do. And I can look at what uh, uh, Vice President Pence did on January 7th, or was it January 6th, January 8th, the 6th. events of the 
state capital or the U.S. capital. I mean, that took enormous personal and political courage. And as a result, he may be beaten into the ground politically as a Republican candidate, but I admire him for that. And and there are a lot of people. I mean, I think Chris Christie is an example of someone who is, you know, noisy but right on so much. And, you know, Ron, De, uh, Ron DeSantis, DeSantis got, as governor of Florida, did a superb job. There are a bunch of these people in the Republican ranks that ought to be listened to and not just blamed because everybody thinks Donald Trump's the second coming. Well, he's not. And he's had a chance and he did a lot of good things. But I'm just, uh, as a citizen, someone who wants to see a fresh and younger face. But that said, um, it, I, I look at the president and, you know, do you think the the slavery would have been abolished but for Abraham Lincoln? I think not until much, much later. And the successes of states and the successes of countries are the result in part of men and women of goodwill of both parties, governors and presidents, who say, let me show you what's wrong and let's fix it together. And we don't have enough of that. This probably, you could expend this uh, to many different institutions. Uh, and uh, and it just has troubled me as somebody who, whose parents also said that my brother and I had an obligation to spend time uh, helping uh, the community as a whole. We happened to be raised in a political family that, i.e., people paid attention to politics from uh, from birth, uh, it seems. But um, we were raised with the obligation in mind that we had to contribute something because to give back to the country that's given so much to us. But having said that, um, I am troubled by the turmoil that we're, we're going through in this period of time, uh, 2000s and, uh, and, and some other, some numbers. It could be, it's, doesn't have to be 23 or 24. It can be that general period of 10, 15 years mm -hmm. where we've developed into uh, a suspicious society, a, uh, a lack of concern society. And so that, it just concerns, it, it bothers me. And I wanted to bounce this off of you. And I've given uh, interesting points on this about in real life how things can work if you sit down and give respect to one another. You don't have to agree, but you give them respect that they have the right uh, to speak. And you have the obligation to listen, but so do they. So at any rate, we're going to take another break right now. We're talking to Frank Keating, who is former governor of Oklahoma, uh, former head of law enforcement for many federal agencies, currently on the U.S. on the uh, University of Oklahoma uh, Board of Regents, uh, and uh, just an all-around interesting guy. Uh, this is John Smetanka, and we will be right back.
We're now back in With Respect with our guest, Frank Keating, former governor of Oklahoma, former uh, nominee for the Tenth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. Uh, didn't work out, and many things that did and did not work out in his life, uh, but he's kept on going, and uh, we're hearing about some of the things that happened. This is John Smetanka. We're on With Respect. Frank, I now held off to this point talking about uh, the bombing of the federal courthouse in uh, Oklahoma City, uh, for which Timothy McVeigh and another fellow were convicted of uh, setting off a fertilizer bomb and killing 168 people and wounding another 800 and destroying the building, but more important, the lives and the families of uh, people who either were wounded or family of the people who were who died. Frank, tell me about that day, because I and I want to I want to tie this into what we've been talking about is how an institution can work if it's well done. So tell me about what was it like that when you heard about this? Well, well, I, I you know I'll kick off our <coughs> brief discussion with the fact that I have never heard my pastor or enough pastors, we're a church-going country, uh, talk about behavior and morals and ethics and values and the law <clears throat> and integrity. Well, McVeigh, the guy that did this horrific act, was a veteran. McVeigh believed that the uh, ATF was responsible, and the ATF used to report to me uh, at Treasury, <clears throat> for the killings of the, at the Branch Davidian compound. I don't deny that what they did was grossly incompetent, and that is the finding. But to say those men and women, the agents, purposely murdered people at the Branch Davidian compound is just historically and factually incorrect based upon the investigation that came later. Well, <clears throat> in Oklahoma City... McVeigh, uh, basically angry at that, decided he was going to make people pay. He had to uh, do something dramatic. And he shared his plans with several people. And A, nobody tried to talk him out of it. And B, he put together an agenda to do precisely that. And it was a federal building filled with federal workers. Uh, April 19, 1995, U.S. Secret Service used to report to me nationally at Treasury, we lost six agents uh, on April 19th, um, the worst uh, loss of Secret Service lives in the history of the service. And it just go down the list. All these federal employees, people visiting the, tr uh, the credit union, and particularly 19 babies, the, the national horror of 9-11, people who you found there had jumped from the buildings. Everybody else was black powder. In Oak City, everybody was there. And to talk to the survivors, you know, taking children out of the daycare center who were mangled and dead. Uh, I mean, it was just horrific. Now, why would anybody make a political statement like that? But McVeigh did. If he didn't like ATF, why didn't he call his congressman and tell him they ought to repeal the organization, get rid of them? But we're not going to have people that fire before they aim 
and I'm not criticizing ATF in that respect. They just walked into something that was a mess and it all fell around them and fell apart around them. But the truth is, if I were, you know, angry at government, I would run for Congress or I would call my congressman or I would go see people and just demand press conferences and signs that something be done, but don't murder 19 children. I think morals, ethics, values, and the, the limits of free speech, a lot of people just don't think about that. Think of all these school shootings over what? Who knows what the motives were? But people decided it'd be a fun day to go get an AR-15 and mow innocent people down. Well, that's evil. You know, hell's made for those kind of people. And it's just sad to me, a religion-going community like we have in the United States of many different religions would have children go out and do the devil's work. You know, where are the pastors and where are the parents? Big question. All right. The institution, the institution that uh, you represented, which is the state of Oklahoma, reacted to the, uh, to the horrible thing that you've just described in ways that united the state of Oklahoma and um, impressed the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And you and Kathy um, um, were part of that. You were the leaders. What happened? What did you, how did it work that government actually did something uh, to make, uh, I don't want to be flippant about it, but to make something good out of something bad? Well, you have to appoint good people. <coughs> I was criticized because I chose a registered Democrat, two-star general, to be the adjutant general of Oklahoma. He already was a two-star general. A lot of people will choose their best friend down the street who retired from the military, perhaps as a major, and make him a two-star general. Well, get the best you can get. And Steve Courtright later became head of the National Guards nationally. But Steve told me what the Graves Registry was. He knew everything about a situation like the Oak City bombing, what you need to do, because everybody was just, I mean, PTSD, is myself included, just been ripping through the alumni, if you will, of, of those horrible days. But I made sure the people who, and I was only in office two months, the, the people who responded uh, were uh, capable and well-trained, and they were. And But Oklahoma City just poured out its heart for these people. There was not one act of looting, and 302 bills, uh, buildings were damaged or destroyed. I remember a firefighter from uh, the northeastern part of the United States when my wife and I saw him off and said goodbye and thanks for being here. These were the FEMA urban rescue people. This guy said, hey, governor, you know what this is? And he had a dollar bill in his hand. I said, oh, yeah, I'm in politics. That's a dollar bill. And he laughed. And they said, no, this is an Oklahoma dollar. I came here, and I never had to spend a cent. We went out to dinner, went to restaurants, all of us, and the bill never came because someone would whisper, those guys are here taking care of our people. There's that that sharing and caring community spirit. Every town, every state can develop it, but you need the pastoral community, the religious community, the business community to help educate people about the importance of brotherhood and sisterhood. 
I um, got involved, start, started up a program called Weed and Seed uh, in D.C. when I was in DOJ, and it spread around the country. I'm not sure if Oklahoma had uh, any of the sites, but the idea was uh, weeding and seeding in neighborhoods. It was all neighborhood-based and based on the people who lived there uh, getting a chance to take charge of their own community. Uh, the weeding was, we'd go in, and if there was gangs or guns, violence, drugs, uh, being uh, uh, terror- terrorizing community, law enforcement would come in and cooperate with one another and with people who lived in the community to root it out or to neutralize it. And then, uh, coterminous with that, see we had seeding, which was all of the agencies that you've talked about, the institutions that you've talked about, labor, education, business, churches, schools, um, government. Now, Weed and Seed, John, Weed and Seed, <coughs> we have a similar type program, but, boy, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world, what that organization was doing, and you're to be commended for your role in that. Well, it's it's the whole idea, Frank, that I, I uh, we helped design it, was the community is the best judge of what they really need. And the rest of society has an obligation to make the conditions under which uh, the seeds will sprout and, and, and do uh, produce fruit a hundredfold. Uh, Janet Reno told me one time that she said, John, I'm sorry, but the uh, we're, we think that the ta- term weed and seed uh, sounds too... Um, too harsh, and so we're looking to get a new name. Sorry, I know you were involved in creating this program. And about uh, six or eight weeks later, I was back in the department and saw her. He said, John, I hate to, you know, you're going to be surprised by this. We sent out a, uh, a survey to all the weed and seed sites and, and said, what names do you want to use? And they all said, weed and seed. We love it. <laughs> it was meaningful. It was meaningful. <laughs> So and a compliment. Yeah, it was. It was a great <laughs> compliment. And But I want to say one more thing about uh, you, Frank, um, and you don't know anything about this, uh, because one day we, you and I were at a conference in uh, San Antonio, and uh, it was Sunday morning, and uh, I was walking down the hall to get ready to go to, to church, I think, and uh, in, the, in the hotel, the motel, and I saw you down at the end of the hall with your three kids. And... There was no one else around. There was none of the U.S. attorneys around, none of the politicians around, just the four of you. And I looked at the, th- the four of you and I thought, you know what? These kids love their father, and their father loves them. And it, re- it, it um, put me back into uh, thinking about what it is about people in, in the public life. And I tell you that... Uh, if you see a politician, see what they're like with their young kids and with their dogs. <laughs> because young kids and dogs, they, they know. You can't fool them. And so I thought, you know, hey, this, this, this guy, this Keating guy is all right. You're but, so nice, John. And I'm a regular retriever rescue guy. <laughs> and I love my kids. And we've got yeah, you're very sweet. We have had uh, f- we're now on our fourth uh uh standard poodle rescues. But at any rate, Frank at the end of the day you got 1 minute. 
what have you learned about life and your mission uh, in the last in, the, in your career? Well, <clears throat> the the fact is, I was extraordinarily lucky to be born into a family where my father and mother were both college graduates. Not every family has that. I was extraordinarily lucky, extraordinarily lucky to have a blind date with Kathy, whom I asked her to marry me on our third date. And she's been an extraordinarily wonderful mother, successful mother, and loves all of us. And she is a, a titanic presence in our lives. So much is good fortune, but you can make your bed too. And you just need to make sure if you've got, if you make it, if you're making bad decisions, if you've made a bad decision, get away from it. You know, the one permanent thing that you can't embrace is bad, is bad. And just don't do it. And so that's where the churches come in. That's where leadership comes in, business leadership, uh, obviously academic school leadership. But no matter how many mistakes we make, and we make a lot, we're human beings. If we make a titanic one, step away from it because it probably will never, never heal itself. Frank Keating, thank you very much for joining us on With Respect. It's been a pleasure. Uh, a lot of good ideas, a lot of good things to talk about, a lot of controversial things. Uh, but it all comes down to, as I say, with respect. And we have a motto for this show. Um, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. So, Frank, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, and thank you, John.